who do you rely on? I think, I think many of us, as, as we think about that, if, if, we're, if we're not in the church setting, if we were outside of here, if we were in our work, if we were in our house and, and someone said, who do you rely on? We would probably give a different answer than we would give sitting in a sanctuary after a children's sermon. Yes? I'm going to be honest and say that would be my case. I might talk about Aaron, my friend who I said I could call right now. He would think it was strange, although he probably wouldn't think it was out of the question that I would call him during a sermon. This very week, I had uh, my mentor come in from Seattle. He was here to do a pastor's retreat in, uh, actually in Butler, and he called me after he touched down at Pittsburgh Airport, and he said, James Benson, I have a feeling that I am close to you, and I just need to give you a call. And I said, actually, he said, I'm on 79. I just came from the airport. I said, mercy, I, you are close. He said, I'm headed to Butler, PA. I said, really? Wow. And so he, he is one of the people that I can call on. He is one of the people that, that will call on me to make sure that I am okay. He is someone that I can rely on. And in fact, on Tuesday, uh, my first day back in the office from vacation and study leave, he called me and he said, I'm on my way back from the pastor's retreat. Do you have time for lunch? And I said, yes, I do. People that we rely on, they're the people who show up in our lives. They're the people that, that are constant in our lives. Sometimes that's family. Sometimes that's friends. Sometimes that's coworkers because the, we are in such close contact with some of those people. I know from my time in Illinois, there are uh, a couple of the people who were working, uh, they had close relationships with their coworkers. And there are people, that, in fact, that we went over to their house as well at a couple times. And just like we heard, sometimes we rely on ourselves. Because you know what? Sometimes I'm the only one I can rely on to get this done right. Yes? Amen? Anyone in that boat? Oh, come on. I am not the only one in this room. Thank you. All right. I am not the only one in this room that, that believes that. But here's what we're going to learn today. We're going to be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5. And in fact, I'm going to chop this down. We're in, uh, apologies to, to John. It's not adding, it's subtracting. So hopefully this is easier. Uh, it, of all those, we're going to look at 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 5. We're just going to park in that first text there, 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 5. And this is about King David. And what David is going to show us is that disciples rely on God's timing and plan. Disciples rely on God's timing and plan. And we're going to talk about two aspects of that. We're going to talk about the pain of, of waiting and we are going to talk about the process of waiting. Because as we rely on God's timing and God's plan, we're going to be waiting. And so we want to talk about the pain and the process of waiting. And this, uh, this week in the uh, podcast, I will also talk about the power of waiting, but I'm not going to pull that in right now. So let's take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Take your Bible out, get that ready. Uh, and here we are. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. 
In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years, six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is God's word to us today. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your grace. We give you thanks for your word. We approach it once again. And as we approach a a text that even as we, even for those who have read it a number of times this week, it found it difficult to find your will and your goodness in it, reveal to us the ways that we should live out of this text. Show us your goodness through David. And in so doing, show us how we might live in the midst of our world. Strengthen my words during this time, for mine are empty, just a vapor in the wind. But you, O God, you hold the very words of eternal life, so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, disciples rely on God's timing and plan. And, and I think the question that you could get out of this text and that, uh, that main idea is how do you get such a broad idea, such a, an impactful idea out of David was crowned king? Because when at first look, it is very, very easy to say, you know what, this is, they come to David, David says, yep, I'll be king, he was crowned, he reigns 40 years, the end, let's get to the spina bifida lunch. First of all, we're 21 minutes too early for the spina bifida lunch. So, let's hang in there. Secondly, I think there's a bit more here, and and the commentators will will agree with me, that there's a bit more because there's some context that we need to understand in, in this text. It starts out, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. What's the context of this statement? Because if we understand the context, we're going to understand that there is a lot packed into that statement. In fact, I could stop at all the tribes of Israel came to David, and we could have a field day with that. And in fact, we did at Sunday school. I I feel like we had a very good Sunday school class talking about that context and and what that, that means. As uh, the pastor who baptized me um, uh, was fond of saying, text without context leads to pretext. And so we want to understand that context. Samuel anointed David prior to this moment in, in, the, in the story 10 to 15 years prior. So as we're talking about David being anointed king over all Israel... Samuel's anointing saying, you are the next king of Israel, came 10 to 15 years prior to that moment. Now, 
David has been waiting that long for the crown of Israel. And if you remember, David was anointed as the next king of Israel while the current king of Israel, Saul, was still living. That generally produces some, 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 uh, some friction, some tension when you are crowned king and someone else is already king. I mean, that's generally not a good situation. And in fact, at first it was okay because of the, the righteousness of David, but Saul kind of got jealous and there, were some, there was some friction, there was some attempted murder, you know, things that, you know, just happen in everyday life, right? All right. Three-quarters of you are asleep. (laughs) Saul tried to kill David. That's not normal. It's not healthy. And David had multiple chances over those 10 to 15 years to kill Saul. In fact, two very concrete uh, moments when David could have killed Saul. One, David went into Saul's tent and put his, his spear right next to Saul's head as he was sleeping. And it let Saul know, I am not against you. I could have done this, but I am not going to do this. I am for you, Saul, because you are God's anointed. David comes back to that over and over again. Saul, regardless of the fact that God had withdrawn his blessing, was still God's anointed. And David would not go against him. The second moment was when uh, Saul had gone into one of the caves uh, outside of Jerusalem, and David and his men were in there, and Saul had had too much coffee, and so Saul needed to take care of some things, and David came up and cut a corner of his robe off. Very easily could have killed Saul, and if you're wondering what that means, uh, kids, talk to your parents about having too much coffee. David had plenty of opportunity to take the crown for himself. David had plenty of opportunity to, to make good on the, his anointing by himself. But he didn't. And when Saul finally dies, he weeps bitterly for Saul and Jonathan. He weeps because God's anointed is dead. Then seven and a half years prior to this text, to this story, David had been crowned king in Hebron after Saul died. Now, Hebron is in the south of Israel. It is south, uh, south-southwest of Jerusalem. And it was functionally at that moment the capital of the southern tribe of Judah. And so David was crowned king over Judah, not over all Israel, Not over the 12 tribes, but over two tribes. And the other 10 tribes were, they were warming to him, but we need to figure out about this guy, David. Those other 10 were slow to warm to him. But then we get to this verse that that David, uh, excuse me, that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. It took seven and a half years. David had a lot of waiting to do since he was anointed and proclaimed king. And and here's the thing, much of that waiting made his future uncertain. 
you know, there was uh, the seven and a half years of just Judah. There was the 10 to 15 years of nothing. And while David could have killed Saul, that wasn't the way that he was to become king over Israel. David understood that that would have put him at odds both with the people and with God if he had tried to take the kingdom that way. And there were times when it looked like Saul was going to win. There were times when it looked like Saul was going to get the better of David. It's not exactly a good day when you're hiding in the caves fearing for your life. And there were likely moments in those times when David was wondering what God's plan was in all this. Lord, you promised this to me? I didn't realize that being king was going to require running for my life. I didn't realize that being king was going to be wondering who was for me and who was against me. I didn't realize being king was going to require me to wonder if the current king was actually going to succeed in killing me. There were likely doubts in David's mind as to whether he could trust God's promise. And then once you have that idea, can I trust God's promise, you start thinking, well, do I just now need to start taking things into my own hands? Do I just need to take control of the situation for myself? And we experience that exact same feeling when there is uncertainty in our lives, isn't there? When, when something is uncertain, we want to make it certain as quickly as we humanly can. There are biblical examples of this. David and Saul is, are our current examples, but there were others. Abraham and Sarah, the promise for a son. And what do they do? They take matters into their own hands. Here is Hagar, my maidservant. Since I can't have any children, have a child with her. Jacob, uh, well, Jacob and basically anyone he encountered... Uh, he, he tried to take matters into his own hands. But let's go with something a little bit more modern. It's still not right on our doorstep, not anything anyone in here will remember, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Well, let me ask you this. Two weeks after the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, what do you think the headline was in, uh, I think it was the San Francisco Chronicle? You think it was about rebuilding death tolls maybe. Here was the headline. Marriage license business shatters all records. Two weeks after the earthquake. We don't like uncertainty. When the world becomes more uncertain around us, we want to lock things down. People who were considering marriage said, it's time. If the earth under me is going to move, we just need to get this done. Interestingly, divorces also rose in the same We don't like uncertainty. We want things to be certain in our lives. We want to lock them down. We want to know where we are going and when we are going. It's why churches like the one-hour church service. Because we want to know when we're there and we want to know when we leave. I don't want to have to guess at my lunch plans. And so we, we, 
like certainty in our lives. And our natural impulse is to dull the pain of uncertainty by removing it from our lives. And so uncertainty, waiting, is unnatural to us. You hear that? Waiting is unnatural to us. So what can we learn then from David on how to wait on God through the pain? Because David waited and he waited and he waited. He waited approximately 20 years from the time he was anointed to the time that he finally became king over all Israel. That's a lot of time to wait. I don't even like waiting through the, the one-minute commercial on Netflix. One of our first uh, considerations needs to be that while our emotions are dictators, God isn't that pushy. You hear what I'm saying? Our emotions are dictators, authoritarian rulers in our lives, but God is not that pushy. He, he wants us to, to seek Him. He doesn't demand our attention. He wants our affection. He doesn't demand our attention. He wants our affection. The prophet Elijah experienced this when he was uh, seeking God's voice. He was seeking God's, uh, the, 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 an experience of God, and so he went up onto the mountain, and there was fire, and there was earthquake, and there were a whole number of large things. And then in 1 Kings 19.12, we read this, after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And it's at that moment that Elijah covers himself because he understands that it's at that moment that God is speaking to him. We often want to listen to the, the loud alarm, and in fact, we have been trained to listen for the loud alarm in our, in our lives. Every single night, you know, this is a, a difference that I notice even growing up. I grew up watching NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw. And uh, good evening, coming to you from Washington, wherever he was. It was a very calm, it was a very, it was a very uh, moderated introduction. The biggest thing was the John Williams music at the beginning of NBC Nightly News. Now, every night, it's breaking news in red highlight. And every channel that has news on when I'm at the gym talks about breaking news and this happens and this person is destroyed because of what this person says. We have been trained to look for the loud alarm, to listen for the loud alarm, not the small whisper. We often go... Just ignore the small whisper. Just as easy as it was to, to not listen to, all of Israel came to David. David had waited for that moment. David could have taken the throne for himself in those seven and a half years, but he waited on God's timing. He waited on God's leading. David was faithful in both waiting on God's timing and inquiring whether he should move forward or not. Later in chapter 5, you actually have two examples of David inquiring for the Lord. Should I do this? 
It's about relatively the same question. When you have decisions to make, what are your criteria? When you go to make decisions in your lives, what are your criteria? Are you like David? Do you pray for God's will? Is, is, is our first impulse as a people to say, I need to seek God's will in this? I don't think we're trained that way. I don't think we've been discipled that way. Because I think there are other really important questions that press on our minds in those moments. Do we think whether, you know, a deal or a decision has more upside than down in our lives? And so that's, that's our criteria. Uh, whether it adds convenience or decreases pain or, or, uh, or tension or anxiety. You know, when we decide, should I get Netflix or Hulu? We aren't necessarily thinking, I need to inquire of the Lord about this. We're thinking, what's the TV show that I like that I can get from this for my 18 or increasing number of dollars a month? Whether a, a decision would make us seem more, uh, more honorable and likable or less honorable or likable and who the audience is whether it is advantageous for our family, that's a consideration, whether it advances our career and our earning chances, uh, whether it protects our rights, whether it protects our ego, whether it protects our position, whether it protects our power, those are all questions that come up and they are all seemingly important questions. Because we can justify it. If I don't have my position, if I don't have my power, then I can't influence things for the better. Uh, if I don't protect my family, no one else will. Why would I make a decision that has more downside than upside anyway? These are all very important and very powerful questions in our lives. But are they secondary to the question of God's leading? My guess is that we default to one of these less spiritual but weighty considerations I've mentioned. After all, like I said, there are important values at stake. But at the end of the day, if we claim that our relationship with God is the most important value in our life, and yet we, we offer no space for God to weigh in, what are we really saying about that value? What are we really telling the world about the value of God in our lives? So we have that to consider. That's the, that's the um, excuse me, that's the, the criteria for decision, but then the process for making a decision. David shows us here, David's life invites us into a pattern of asking for God's leading and God's timing in all of our decisions. David consciously sought God's leading, not God's approval. There are, those are two major, two vastly different things in his life. You know, there's, there's a big difference between the leading of God and the approval of God. So often we decide, you know what, I think I need to move this way. God, please bless me. And I don't mean that in a funny way. We do that. We say, Lord, I think this is the right way to go. Please bless me as I, as I step out. Instead of saying, Lord, which way should I go? 
what is the leading of your Holy Spirit? Is this something you want me to do? The, the way that we can phrase this concisely is that we ask the Lord to bless what we do, not to do what the Lord blesses. Do you hear that? We ask the Lord to bless what we do, not to do what the Lord blesses. And so we want to be a people that seeks to, seeks to do what the Lord blesses, not to be people who step out and, and then say, Lord, bless what I'm doing. Does our process for making a decision include God at the forefront? Do we actively engage the Holy Spirit in the process of our decision-making, just as we would actively include uh, people, trusted advisors around us? And that's a reminder that not every decision that we make is going to be a right-wrong decision. That's the difficulty of life. Sometimes we look and we say there are two right decisions. You know, uh, <laughs> we, we have uh, right after worship today, we have um, uh, both of our boys have sports games. And who's going to take who to whose game? Who is going to take whom? Sorry, I need an objective case. To whose game? And it seems like two right decisions or, or we might be in the position, more likely than not, that we have two bad decisions and which one are we going to make? Because neither one of them looks terribly, terribly wonderful. And sometimes uh, we have to make a… We, there might be something that looks good, but we have no time in our schedule. We have no margin in our life to add that thing. A right decision at the wrong time is still a wrong decision. Do we seek God's leading in that? Pastor Pete Scazzaro pastored um, a church in Queens, New York. Uh, he is the author of uh, Emotionally Help Healthy Discipleship and the Emotionally Healthy Church. He has found, after burning himself out and almost ruining his marriage, he has found the grace of waiting on God's leading. And one of the things that he says to people is that not every opportunity to expand the work of God is actually an invitation from God. Not every opportunity to expand the work of God is actually an invitation from God. If God wants to make, uh, excuse me, if, if the splitter, the devil, diabolos, that's the root of that term, wants to separate us from God, then sometimes all that he needs to do is make us really, really busy with religious things so that we aren't tending the relationship that we have with God. And so we want to include the Holy Spirit in our decision-making process. When the elders of Jerusalem met to consider how to include non-Jewish believers into the, the church of God, they used this curious phrase in Acts 15, 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. They sought the Holy Spirit's counsel before they spoke with any authority, and they put the Holy Spirit first in their phrasing, because that was where it was in their discernment. 
it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us as well. We're just an afterthought to the Holy Spirit, but we're not going to burden you with anything beyond these requirements. It's not just the what, but the how and the why that matter to God in our decision-making. The how and the why matter to God as well. So let me I challenge you for this week. What do we do with this? Let me challenge you to identify three decisions you need to make this week. Three decisions that are coming up this week. It could be about parenting or grandparenting. It could be about school. It could be about work, about friendship. It could be about any of those things. But identify three decisions you need to make about it. And consciously engage God first and say, Lord, what is your leading in this? What would you have me do in this? And involve one to two other godly people in that prayer process with you. Because we don't discern these things on our own. Even the elders in Jerusalem, as they made their decision, they talked amongst one another. They prayed with one another. And they said it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And so involve one to two other godly people in your prayer process. But identify those three questions that you're going to need to have an answer to this week. Engage the Holy Spirit and engage uh, one to two other godly people, and then less, listen for the gentle whisper of God's voice in your prayer and through your prayer counselors. And let me say, this is going to be difficult if you've not done it before. This is going to be difficult because we are so used to the noise. We are so used to, to the loudness of our world. We're about to come up on Advent again, I know, don't shoot me. But last year for Advent, we very intentionally included silence in our time of worship. And the number of people who said to us, that was so difficult, but it was so good. This is going to be difficult because it requires us to listen. But just like God himself, let me assure you that it is good. This is a concrete way that we can become more trusting disciples, relying on God's timing and God's plan. So that's what we are called to do, and that is the example of David. All the elders of Israel, all the people of Israel came to David. He waited and waited, and waited. Are we a people who are willing to wait on the Lord? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for, thank you for your non-pushy ways. Thank you that you are not another alarm in our lives, but you call us to yourselves quietly and gently, and that you offer us rest and rejuvenation for our weary souls. Teach us through David's example to wait on you. And in so doing, help us to know the freedom that comes from trusting you. 
Help us as we go about this week to, to do just that with, with the three decisions that each of us needs to make during the week, that we are going to consciously seek your will. We give you thanks for all this through Jesus Christ who waited on your will even into death. Amen.